I'm going to throw two terms by you. The first is intellectual property, and the second is social justice. What if I told you that those two terms are something every business leader needs to understand? Because it ain't woke, it's the law. This is something that everyone in the classroom, everyone in the business and professional world can, can participate in. And I think that's the way we're gonna be looking at IP. And that's all we mean by IP social justice. Hi, I'm Irene Silber with the Vanguard Network. Dr. Latif Matima is a professor at Howard University Law School in Washington, DC. And 20 years ago, he founded the Institute for Intellectual Property and Social Justice. Intellectual property law has been changing lately, but the legal foundation of IP actually goes back to the founding fathers. Former public TV journalist Ken Stone spoke with Professor Matima at a recent Vanguard Dialogue. What's interesting to me is when I first heard intellectual property and social justice put in the same phrase, um, I was thinking the reaction to most people would be, oh, that's seems like it's awfully woke. It seems like it's the newest thing. Yet it's not. We're talking about it's actually goes back to the Constitution. Yes, yes. So as a matter of fact, the, the way in which uh, intellectual property law is provided for in our legal structure is that one can go all the way back to Article One, Section 8 of the Constitution, and it specifically grants Congress the power to uh, 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 enact and implement an intellectual property laws in terms of both copyrights and patents, specifically with the purpose of to promote the progress of the arts and sciences. So what many people aren't aware of is that the founding fathers thought of this as something that was so important that it is in the first article of the constitution. So bring it to a, a business leader today. They're like, okay, that sort of makes sense, professor. Um, but what does it have to do with my business? You know, I think the first thing is this. Throughout much of the middle and latter portion of the 20th century, we thought about intellectual property endeavor in these very strict, narrow terms. And as a result of that, we left a lot of people on the bench. We left a lot of people outside, right? And the thing of it is, is that what you want is that you want everyone in society to pitch in and to make their contribution because we benefit as a whole. So when you really think about it, you know, if, if I were the head of, of a business um, and I was going out to try to decide who do I want to, who do I want to recruit, right? I want the best talent and I want to be able to canvas the entire nation if I could and to find out the best and most capable people wherever they are. And that's the way to think about intellectual property, that it is tapping into human talent, right? And how do you get the most and the best out of all of the human talent possibilities available to us? So when we talk about intellectual property, social justice, what we say is that you want to think about the purpose of the intellectual property system as first encouraging human beings to develop their individual talents and pursuits, uh, what we like to call human actualization in academia. And we want them to direct those talents and those pursuits towards specific types of intellectual endeavor, producing copyrightable works, producing patentable innovations, producing uh, trade secret mechanisms and techniques and, and processes, and all towards the ultimate benefit of our society as a whole. 
I mean, it's really interesting because when you when people think about intellectual property, uh, they often think about big conglomerates mm -hmm. stealing from small individual creative. Mm -hmm. um, but it's more complex than that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and that's one of the things that we have to change and can change through an IP social justice perspective. You know, there are people who attack the IP system and think that it's just a corporate mechanism. But the fact of the matter is, is that, well, corporations are comprised of human beings, right? No corporation, you know, writes a song or no corporation actually invents a pharmaceutical drug. They're individual artists, they're individual scientists, they're individual creators, right? And the fact of the matter is that IP, it is a source of empowerment for individuals every bit as much as it can be a source for economic strength for corporations. It all depends upon what we demand of the IP system, right? If we think about it solely in terms of uh, corporate profits, well, we'll get what we get as a result of that. But if we also think about it in terms of what's the best way to encourage and motivate individual creators and innovators, then we will get so much more out of that system and out of those individuals. You've got a tough sell, in a sense, to get uh, particularly the business community to pay attention to you. First of all, I'm going to challenge you. Shouldn't you come up with something other than social justice? Because that instantly you're in this political realm, red, blue, where we are today, and the discussion almost stops right there. Yeah, you know, it's unfortunate. You know, I mean, 20 years ago, you know, when I first started doing this work, you know, the term social justice was not quite so incendiary. And I would expect that probably 20 years from now, it, it won't be so incendiary. You know, we're at a moment in time, right, in which uh, buzzwords have a great deal of electricity to, uh, uh, to them. Uh, I think that uh, what I like to say to people is that the social justice perspective when applied to IP recognizes that intellectual property endeavor, the intellectual property system, it is not a zero sum game. Right. That's what we're really saying. We're saying that first and foremost, as a nation, we want to make certain that I don't want people sitting in Appalachia and not being a part of this system. I don't want people sitting in Watts and not being a part of the system. I don't want it in terms of, of the United States intellectual property system. There is no flyover zone. Right. We need everybody to be a part of it. In addition, for every person that gets involved, it doesn't knock another person out, right? You know, I tell my, my students and, and, and many practitioners that, you know, when you think about the music industry, popular music, for example, 90% um, of popular music, they're all based upon the same idea. Baby, I love you, right? Baby, why did you leave me, right? The, the fact of the matter though, right, is that each person who takes that idea, you know, whether it's, it's, it's Paul McCartney or, or Smokey Robinson, they can each take that idea, turn it into a beautiful work, and it in no way precludes the next songwriter from coming in and doing the same thing. In fact, it motivates and incentivizes the next creator to do that. Same in the patent, in, 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 in the patent field, right? You come up with a fantastic innovation. I look at that innovation and that achievement, it either inspires me, to figure out how to build upon it, or it challenges me how to take it in another direction and create an embodiment that is all my own. 
So the fact of the matter is, is that if we think correctly about IP and its role in, in, in our society, right, we not only do we all benefit, but particularly from the business perspective, okay, we are able to identify so many more prospective participants who can contribute, whether it's co contributing to the national bottom line or our own individual businesses bottom line. Uh, have the courts started to uh, address this uh, and, and focus uh, this issue of intellectual property in, a, in a, a more expansive way, or perhaps I should say in a more traditional way, constitutional? Yeah, yeah. You know, um, for many years, um, and many IP legal practitioners know this, you know, up until the mid to late 1980s, um, IP law was not didn't have a big presence in, 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 in law schools, right? But then in the post-digital information world, in which IP endeavor just is now everywhere, right? I mean, you can't what we're we're talking um, on Zoom, right? And that involves all kinds of uh, patentable IP, copyrightable uh, IP. Today you can't pick up your phone you know, without IP uh, being involved. And so what's happened over the past, say, 20, 25 years is the courts have gotten more involved in thinking more carefully about what is it that the IP system is supposed to do in our society. And so there have been a variety of, of large, controversial, and sometimes very co uh, contentious uh, uh, cases that have come up to the court in which the court has had to have a more affirmative role in shaping IP law and policy. Uh, many would say that they don't always get it right. Uh, some would say that sometimes they, they, they do a good job, but the, the fact of the matter is that they understand now that you can you can no longer shunt it off off to the side, and I would say for the last several years, almost every year, there's been at least one major IP case uh, uh, before the court. Before we started recording, you had mentioned that uh, you were teaching two classes this semester, mm -hmm. and one's commercial law, which is you know the bedrock everybody has to take that right, and yeah. your IP course. And I just assumed that the commercial law would be the big course and the IP would be few, but that's not the case. You have more students in the IP. That's right. That's right. It used to be when I started teaching 25 years ago, the commercial law class was the giant class, right? I mean, I would have anywhere from 50 to 70 students in, in, in that class. And when I brought intellectual property into the Howard uh, 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 curriculum, uh, because we didn't really have any real IP program when, when I came on board, um, you know, you might be lucky if you had 20, 25 students in the class. Today, as I teach both of these classes, um, the commercial law class, uh, I've got between 30 and 40 students. And I can say that 95% uh, of those students that are in the class are not interested in teaching commercial law. They're there simply because it is a class that is on uh, virtually every bar in the state. On the other hand, the intellectual property class, which is not on any bar, I currently have between 60 and 70 students in that class. So it has been an, a complete uh, uh, about face. And it's particularly significant given the fact that every student that's in that class, none of them need to take this class. It's not on any bar, it's not in any way required. They're all there simply because that is a practice area that they feel that they need to know something about. And I could say easily half of them know they want to go into IP practice and maybe the other half or 40%, oh, they don't intend on going into IP practice, but they know 
that to be a 21st century lawyer, they need to know something about the way that the intellectual property law works. So to be a 21st century business leader, uh, you need to know a little bit about it too. So what are the things that a business leader should know? What's the questions they ought to be asking their general counsel about? What do I need to know about this? And and not from the uh, from the attitude or the position of, you know, I want to make sure we don't get hurt. But what do we need to know about this so that our business can expand and be better? Yeah, great, great question. I love the way that you put that, not only in terms of so that we don't get hurt, because the way I would articulate the question of first and foremost, what are our IP assets? Because it doesn't matter what kind of a company you're in, what kind of a business you're in, you have IP assets. And we need to identify what those IP assets are. How do we make certain that they are best protected? And are we getting the most out of them? Okay, that, 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 that we can. Secondly, what are our IP opportunities? Okay. Not just thinking about what is it that we already may have, okay, but where are the places that we need to be? Because again, it really doesn't matter what your principal business line is, commodities, services, et cetera, okay? There are certainly gonna be ways in which you can expand upon them and certainly enhance them if you understand where your business fits into IP and where IP fits into your business structure. I think we will begin to look at intellectual property endeavor the way we think about athletics, right? The way we think about athletics in this country is that right from, from, from the time a child is like four or five years old, okay, we see opportunities from little league all the way up through colleges and universities, both curricular, extracurricular, outside. We recognize that all of our kids, right? All of our citizens have a way to participate, to contribute something and to get something from it. And I think that we will see IP the same way because after all, not every one of us can be an athlete, right? I know I have very bad hand-eye coordination, right? Not all of us have what it takes, you know, the right stuff to be an astronaut, right? On the other hand, when it comes to IP, we all have the ability to produce something, you know, whether it's a poem or a song, a new machine, uh, uh, do something in the lab, an entrepreneurial technique, okay? This is something that everyone in the classroom, everyone in the business and professional world can, can participate in. And I think that's the way we're gonna be looking at IP. And that's all we mean by IP social justice. We just mean, across the board, access, inclusion, and empowerment so that we are all in it and we're all invested in it. That was Professor Latif Matima speaking with former public TV journalist Ken Stone at a Vanguard Dialogue. The Dialogue and this podcast are just some of the membership benefits of the Vanguard Network, which organizes events, publishes content, and connects C-suite leaders. Our mission is building high-performance leadership. If you'd like more information about us, please visit our website at thevanguardnetwork.com. I'm Irene Silver. Thanks for listening.